Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello and welcome. I'm Ruth Kirchner. My guest today is Anthony Sage, Professor of International Affairs at Harvard Kennedy School and a leading expert on China. Our conversation is part of a special series of podcasts on China's core executive or top leadership. The series is part of our coverage of an international conference at Merrick's held in June, examining leadership styles, structures and processes under Xi Jinping. Professor Sage, thanks for joining me. The Xi Jinping leadership and its relations with society, that's what I want to focus on uh, today. Now let's briefly look back at 2012-13 when she took over. Nobody was expecting a swift uh, move towards liberalism, I suppose, when she became party chairman and later president. But were you surprised how swiftly or quickly he moved maybe in the opposite direction or should we have seen that coming? I don't think anybody would have seen it coming. And I think uh, not just for outsiders, but for many of those in China itself was surprised with the speed with which he moved to try and institute stronger controls and direction over society. I think from his perspective, you know, he probably looked out and just saw a very messy, very chaotic situation with a large number of problems that had to be dealt with, and that unless he could get the party organized, restrict the realms of debate in society to a much narrower band that was acceptable as a area of discussion for the party, that things could spin out of control. So, as always, when we look back with the benefit of hindsight, we can explain, of course, why this seemed reasonable, why this seemed logical. But no, I don't think any of us expected such a harsh and strong movement when Xi Jinping took over. But do you see this as a sign of weakness or as a sign of fear even about a situation that, as you said, could spin out of control? I think it's a sign of both. I think it's a sign that he's a confident leader, that he feels that he can push himself forward to control the process more strongly than uh, perhaps the previous leadership. On the other side of that, though, I mean, I think when you talk so much about the pervasive, pernicious influence of Western ideas, that shows that maybe they're more extensive than many of us realize. And that that is a weakness in the sense that he feels this could undermine Communist Party authority. So it's an odd balance that in some ways he's acting from strength and his own personality, his own dynamism. But he sees himself in a position of weakness from the perspective of the party directing society as a whole. Okay, let's then look at some sort of specific areas. Uh, for instance, the media. I mean, the media or the internet weren't particularly free or liberal before Xi Jinping became party chairman. But do you think that this sort of reigning in of the media, that it has been successful in China? Well, I think if you look at the official media, I think there's no doubt about that. Um, occasionally, an oddity pops up, but it really is an oddity. And I think... Um, You know, he you know called in the people from all the main mouthpieces of the Communist Party, the People's Daily, the television, and so on, and basically told them, you are servants of the Chinese Communist Party. You follow the message from the center. So he's reasserted uh, that traditional uh, areas of control. And of course, yeah, historically, the Chinese Communist Party has always sought to control its official media. The challenge for him has come, of course, with the new social media. And 
before him under the Hu Jintao period as well, where you have a media that moves much more quickly, which forms horizontal linkages that makes it much more difficult to bring under the kind of traditional vertical control mechanisms. And uh, that's where he's really focused his attention. From quite early on, he identified you know, the internet as being the battleground for the future. And I think they've been much more successful than many of us would imagined in gaining control over the internet and the kinds of messages which are put out, not only by the supposed paid supporters of the Communist Party that people refer to as the 50 cent party because they get a little bit of money for each positive posting. But I think generally in terms of shaping people's general ideas and responses has been extraordinarily successful. And uh, the media control and the propaganda is done in a much more sophisticated way than in the past, isn't it? I mean, there's still a fair amount of red banners, especially in places like Beijing. But uh, the government's attitude towards the citizens is not that, that you just sort of bombard them with slogans, is it? No, the the very traditional propagandizing has obviously uh, abated. People know that's not very effective. But still, the, the core bottom line is what I've called the infantilization of the Chinese people, i.e. their children, they can't make their own decisions, you know, we have to tell them what they can read, what they can see, and so on. And that, that has remained constant, really, ever since 1949. And the new challenge for that is how do you bring that kind of control into the modern age of social media and the internet? And as I said earlier, I think... Uh, you know, if I was an authoritarian leader somewhere else in the world, I would be wanting to learn lessons from China. This is Merrick's Experts. With me is Professor Tony Sage. We're discussing Chinese society and media under Xi Jinping. Now, let's move on to civil society and NGOs. You ran the Ford Foundation's Beijing office back in the 90s. China has passed a tough new law on foreign NGOs. I've heard a variety of opinions on that. Some say the leadership is trying to strangle civil society. Others say, let's wait and see that the law might not be as tough as many critics think. What's your take on it? Well, I think strangle is probably at the moment going too far because we just don't know. It's clearly designed to constrain and channel Uh, foreign NGOs. And I think the big difference there is also not just the anti-Westernism, but the fact that China itself has a lot more money and a lot more people with international experience in their own organization. So I think it feels we don't need these people as much as we did before. I was in many ways in a lucky position when I was in the foundation in the 90s. Even though we were always viewed with suspicion, there was a lot of pressure on us. You know, the Chinese state didn't have a lot of money. And so, for example, grants we would make to organizations like the Academy of Social Sciences, some of the universities would often be more money than they were getting from the Chinese government. That is completely reversed now. So I think what the regulations are moving towards is trying to constrain and constrict very carefully foreign organizations working in China. And I think the ones they're really concerned about are those that have offices in China because they might start supporting marginalized groups or the fear, of course, that they have around the ideas of colored revolutions, that somehow foreign NGOs were behind those, inspiring people to protest against authoritarian regimes. I think that all echoes in the chambers of their mind. And this is really setting a much tougher 
process. As we know, registering with the Public Security Bureau, uh, which has no experience of dealing with NGOs. And I think the most worrying aspect of it, as a last thing on this question, is that my understanding is uh, wherever you fund an activity, say your office is in Beijing, you might want to fund it in Sichuan, you would still have to get the approval from the Sichuan public security authorities. And the bottom line is, why give that approval? It might be an innocuous activity, but why give the approval? Because it might turn out to be a mistake. So I think there is no doubt that the operating grounds on which foreign NGOs are going to be working in China is going to be much, much more difficult than in the past. But at the same time, the government does acknowledge, doesn't it, that it needs the third sector, mm. and it does try to sort of tap into the new wealth in China. Yes, well, I think there's two things there. I mean, certain NGOs are still going to be welcome from overseas. I'm the chair of the board of trustees of the China Medical Board, which originally, with Rockefeller money, built the Peking Union Medical College. Now, that has a very narrow task to do with medical education, medical research. It also has a global connectivity that China wants. So I think that kind of organization is probably going to find a way and supporters that will help it to continue to operate. Other ones that maybe are more interested in questions of labor rights, people living HIV AIDS are going to find it more problematic. But as you hinted to, the other real new issue is the rise of China's own private wealth. And that really will dwarf the amounts of money that foreign NGOs would bring into China. And I think interesting what you also see, though, is the very wealthy foreigners like Bill Gates, they deal directly with people like Xi Jinping. And that's no problem. Then, of course, they learn what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, and they can fund in those areas. And I think with the new charities law, on a much grander scale, the Chinese government is trying to set up a structure which allows private foundations to develop, but constrains the areas in which they can operate, while giving them guarantees that they can operate, which were not there before. So then show us where the lines are. What then is allowed and what is not allowed? Where's the red line? Well, I think this is always the problem of working in China, because you never really know where the red line is. And that makes both the donning organization cautious, but it also makes the receiving organization cautious, because if they're a Chinese organization, of course, they would be much more vulnerable. So it, it kind of produces, a, well, we're not quite sure, well, maybe we shouldn't do that, that might be too far out of line. So it's a kind of a built-in caution. On the other side, what the charities law has made very clear is a set of activities which it does encourage uh, giving to, and it's the fairly obvious ones, education, health, care for the elderly, care for orphans, uh, social welfare, disaster relief. Those are now all set in the law as being fields, terrains that they would like private wealth to invest into. So that's pretty clearly demarcated. And as a result, I would think that any Chinese-based foundation is not going to stray from putting money into those areas. Finally, how concerned are you about this move then on the one hand to maybe allow more space for charitable organizations, but at the same time, the restricting the civil society space for, let's say, discussion and open expression? It is worrying in the sense that, you know, China needs innovation, it needs new ideas, 
And what we've seen in the past, that most of those innovative ideas that have proved successful in China have not come out from the party state itself. It has either been through local experimentation or it's been learning from best practices from overseas or it has been funding from Chinese or foreign organizations to local groups grappling with a particular problem. Now, if the current constraints move to block those kinds of innovations, then China could become a very sterile place, confronted by a lot of new problems, old problems, that it is not really coming up with new ways to think about resolving them. And experimentation, which has been a hallmark of the success of reform to date, may be uh, curtailed. And uh, that, I think, would be a very sad thing. But progress in China has always sort of come in leaps and bounds. You first went to China in 1976. Uh, You Mm -hmm. went back, Mm -hmm. I think, almost every year ever since. Uh, China has come a very long way. So do you have confidence that they might still, in the end, move forward? You know, if you'd asked me at any number of periods of time, for example, as a student in the Cultural Revolution, if China was like this in 10 years' time, I would have said, you are insane. This place is not going to change. And you've heard the sirens of doom, you know, know, oh, they'll never get through SOE reform in the 90s. Oh, they'll never survive WTO. And they have. So is this different? Perhaps. I mean, we are in a different era. We do see a regime which is trying to tighten controls, be tougher. But there's a colleague of mine at the Harvard Business School, Bill Kirby. He often says, you know, China will be fine. I'm not so sure about the Chinese Communist Party. And maybe that's not a bad line. So a lot of uncertainty now and in the future. Professor Sage, thanks for joining us and sharing your thoughts. That was Professor Anthony Sage of Harvard Kennedy School. His paper, Controlling Political Communication and Civil Society under Xi Jinping, is published as part of the Merix Papers on China. You'll find the details on our website. And with that, thanks for listening. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Do join me again next time. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.